Happy Nurses Week to all the nurses and future nurses listening. To celebrate, I'm having a 20% off sale on Study Sesh. This is my private podcast that features over 140 episodes to help you study on the go. Formats include pod quizzes, power hour deep dives, drills, and case studies. If you're tired of sitting at your desk or staring at a screen, but still want to review for nursing school, it's time to check out Study Sesh. Go to straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in that top menu bar. That's straightanursingstudent.com and click on Courses in the menu bar. See you there. Well, hello again, everyone. This is Nurse Mo, and welcome back to the Straight A Nursing Podcast. This is episode 176, and today we're going to be talking about labor induction. So before we do that, two fun announcements. I'm recording this from my new studio. For those of you that have been following along with my Instagram stories, I've been sharing little sneak peeks of my office and recording studio remodel. So check out Instagram stories today to see the after of all the beautiful things that I've got going on in here. I'm in love with this space. Okay, and then the other thing that I want to hop into before we get rolling, of course, is our listener shout out. So today's shout out goes out to Jess, who's actually talking about the planners. And for those that have been living under a rock, or just kidding, or who don't know that I make planners for nursing students, they are available now for January to December of next year, 2022. So I will include a link to those, but here's what Jess has to say. She says, this planner has it all. I use it multiple times a day, and it keeps me on track with knowing exactly what I need to be doing. In nursing school, it is easy to become overwhelmed and not know which way is up sometimes. This planner alleviates that. I especially love the weekly planning boxes. I use this to break up my assignments, readings, and studying throughout the week. Great job. Jess, great job on using those blocks to organize your study schedule. I love that. When I created that area, I envisioned people putting like their meals in there because maybe I'm obsessed with food, but I love how you are utilizing it. So thank you so very much, Jess. Appreciate your support and enthusiasm very, very much. Okay, you guys, who's ready to talk about inducing labor? So labor induction is when Mechanical or pharmacologic methods are used to get labor going. It's typically done when either mom or baby are both at risk, and these risks would be alleviated by birth of the child. So it can be elective, but today we're generally looking at it from the standpoint of labor induction as a way to prevent harm to either individual. For example, let's say mom's water broke a several hours ago and we don't want her to go too long because that puts her and baby at high risk for infection. So labor could be induced at that point if it doesn't start on its own. 
So we're going to talk about some different methods used. And the first one we're going to talk about is cervical ripening. And cervical ripening is done to help that cervix soften so that it will dilate effectively for labor. This can be done, again, mechanically or pharmacologically. And the decision to perform ripening is based off something called the Bishop score. And the Bishop score is a standardized method for evaluating the cervix. And without going into a bunch of detail about the Bishop score, basically a score less than eight typically warrants cervical ripening to be done. So how do we go about performing cervical ripening? So the most common is a pharmacologic agent, which is a prostaglandin called misoprostol. You may also hear it called cytotec. And this can be taken PO, it can be given sublingually, or it can be inserted. And I'm trying to keep my clean rating, so unfortunately, I can't even use medical terminology, but I think you know what I mean. And then there's dinoprostone, which goes by the brand name Cervidil or Prepidil. And this is a topical medication and typically in the form of a tampon-like device that can be easily inserted and removed when it's no longer indicated. So these medications, definitely not to be taken lightly. They come with significant potential adverse effects such as miscarriage and even uterine rupture. For this reason, they are typically not given to women who have had a prior cesarean section or uterine surgery of any kind. They are also typically avoided in multi-parity above five or six pregnancies that are carried to term. Women with cephalopelvic disproportion, placenta previa, vasoprevia, fetal distress, a very difficult or traumatic labor, unexplained bleeding, ruptured membranes, active genital herpes, hyperactive or hypertonic uterus, and current oxytocin use. So a lot of contraindications here. If you are using an insert, you would definitely want to remove that before you're starting that oxytocin if you are using that. And I believe the time frame is at least 30 minutes prior to starting that oxytocin infusion. So, so the dinoprostone, if you recall, is like a tampon that could be inserted and removed. That is great because you can easily remove that. There are also mechanical type devices. So devices that can dilate the cervix. And one a very simple one is a Foley catheter with that inflatable balloon placed at the internal os. Or a Cook catheter, and that has two balloons. One places pressure on the internal os, and one places pressure on the external os to gently dilate and soften, ripen that cervix. Laminaria dilators. This is super interesting, you guys. These are made from seaweed, which is highly, highly absorbent. Maybe you've seen Neptune patches. If you haven't, you probably will at some point. And a Neptune patch is basically a little seaweed patch that's super absorbent. And we sometimes put these on wounds or uh, puncture sites that are not uh, achieving hemostasis very easily. They will soak up a lot of fluid. They're amazing. So laminaria dilators, kind of the same concept. 
They are made from highly, highly absorbent seaweed and designed to be inserted into the cervix. And what happens is that laminaria takes in the surrounding moisture to gradually increase in size and very slowly get bigger, causing the cervix to dilate. So that is basically the methods used for cervical ripening. When I talked to my sister-in-law, Hannah, who is a labor and delivery nurse, and if you guys haven't listened to her episode where she talks about being a labor and delivery nurse and how she got into mom and baby nursing as a new grad, I definitely want you to go check that out. That is episode 134. So Hannah was telling me that where she works, they mostly use that Cook catheter or the mesoprostol or the dinoprostone, most commonly used. Another method that you will see used or read about being used is called membrane sweeping. You could also see this called membrane stripping or stripping of the membranes. And this is a mechanical method of labor induction. So this is a process by which the MD sweeps a finger over the membranes that connect the amniotic sac to the uterine wall, and this can cause a release of prostaglandins and other hormones, which leads to cervical ripening and contractions. Interestingly, a Cochrane review conducted in 2020 looked at the effectiveness of membrane sweeping for inducing spontaneous labor. And this Cochrane review concluded that individuals who underwent membrane sweeping were more likely to go into labor without the need for further medical intervention. So there is a little bit of controversy around membrane sweeping, even though it is effective, in that some providers view it as a routine part of the exam, while Others say, no, no, this is a medical procedure that should require informed consent. So if you are interested in diving deeper into this topic, I invite you to check out the Evidence-Based Birth Podcast. It is great. I discovered it as I was researching this episode. And the host is Dr. Rebecca Decker, and she is just so passionate about empowering people through their pregnancies and through their births, and the podcast is called Evidence-Based Birth. And then we have amniotomy, which is a procedure that is performed when the cervix is ready. So the cervix is ripe, it's soft, it's ready to go, and baby is in that head down engaged position. So the MD uses a small device to create a hole in the amniotic sac, and most, most people will go into labor within a few hours of this amniotomy being performed. Note that an amniotomy can make contractions stronger if labor has already begun. And sometimes you'll see this abbreviated as AROM, artificial rupture of membranes. So an amniotomy, why is it done? It can be advantageous over medicinal induction and that there is less risk of that hypertonic or ruptured uterus. And it doesn't require as intense monitoring like you would with an oxytocin infusion. And it gives you an opportunity to evaluate the amniotic fluid. Some disadvantages, however, are that if it's done too early in labor, there is an increased risk for infection, including neonatal sepsis. 
there is increased risk for cord prolapse if baby's head is not fully engaged. So too early in labor, baby's head's not going to be fully engaged and you could have increased risk for cord prolapse then. Increased risk for variable D cells and if vasa previa is present and undiagnosed, like if the woman has it, but we don't know that they have it, it could cause significant bleeding. So also another Cochrane review looked at amniotomy and I believe this review was done in 2013, and it looked at the effect of amniotomy, the effect that amniotomy had on labor in more than 5,500 women, and it showed there was no shortening of the first stage of labor, and there was an increase in cesarean section procedures. So the Florida Perinatal Quality Collaborative, which is a consortium dedicated to the advancement of perinatal health care. This consortium recommends reducing the use of amniotomy and increasing the use of cervical ripening methods instead. So you may see less amniotomies as you're out in your OB clinicals. Let me know what you're seeing as current practice. I would love to hear it. This is usually done in active labor. Again, you don't want to do it too early in labor because of all the risks that I just talked about. And typically done prior to an oxytocin or pitocin infusion, but could be done concurrently with it. So let's talk about oxytocin now. Also brand name pitocin. This is like where people's brains go when they think about labor induction, right? We think of, oh, I'm going to get an oxytocin infusion. And oxytocin is that hormone that occurs naturally in the body to cause the uterus to contract. So the oxytocin infusion could be ordered as a way to start or speed up labor that is taking a really long time. It generally works pretty quickly in about 30 minutes. In most cases, we are off to the races with the labor. Note that one of the things that you need to be aware of with oxytocin is that the contractions are going to be very intense. There's not going to be that natural ramping up of the contractions. They're going to just bam. It's going to be, we're in business here right from the get-go. So I'm not going to say that happens with everybody, but you just have to be aware that it can happen. So pain management may have to take on a very, very key role because the contractions, again, are going to be very intense, most likely right from the get-go. Now, you might see in your books or as you're studying that this individual must be on an epidural infusion. That is not current practice. It is taken on a case-by-case basis, okay? Sometimes textbooks are a little out of date with current practice, so I always like to share what um, typically is seen in the clinical setting as well. We'll talk all about pain management during labor in a whole other episode because we could talk about that for a while. Okay, so we've talked about labor induction techniques. 
what are some indications like why would we induce labor? So lots of indications for labor um, induction at any stage. We're always taking into account the individual's medical and obstetrical history as well as what's going on with the baby. So when we're looking at the individual's medical and obstetrical history, this can include obstetrical things like placental abnormalities, intrauterine growth restriction, premature rupture of membranes, I think I mentioned that earlier, oligohydramnios, polyhydramnios, alloimmunization, and post-term gestation. So those are some common reasons why the MD might say, okay, it's time to get baby out of the oven, right? We're getting the bun out of the oven. Some medical factors for labor induction can include hypertension. So maybe we're in a preeclampsia or eclampsia condition, diabetes. We could That could be that gestational diabetes or just diabetes that was pre-gestational, chronic renal disease or cardiovascular disease. So lots of different reasons that labor could be induced as well. So how about we do a little bit of pod quizzing on labor induction? How does that sound? So if this is your first time doing pod quiz questions, I'm going to ask a question and then I'll pause for a moment to give you time to answer and then I will tell you the answer. So the first question is, the decision to perform cervical ripening is based off the patient's what? Bishop score. Very good. And a score less than blank typically warrants cervical ripening. Less than eight. Very good. So the most common method of cervical ripening is to use what class of medication? Prostaglandin. And which one can be inserted in the form of a tampon-like device? That is dinoprostone. Very, very good. Okay, what is the Generic name for cytotech. Mesoprostol. And what are the brand names for dinoprostone? The two that we talked about earlier. Cervidil and the other one? Prepidil. Excellent. True or false? Cytotech and Cervidil are not to be used in individuals with a prior C-section. That is true. Typically, we avoid that because of the risk for hypertonic uterus. And let's say your patient is using a prostaglandin medication for cervical ripening. You want to stop this medication how long before starting oxytocin? At least 30 minutes. Very good. What is the device that has two balloons that mechanically dilates the cervix? 
That is a Cook catheter. Excellent, excellent. And then what is the one that is made of the highly absorbent seaweed? What was that called? Laminaria dilator. Very, very good. Okay, so now let's talk about membrane sweeping a little bit. What does membrane sweeping cause to be released? It causes the release of prostaglandins and other hormones that lead to cervical ripening and contractions. Very, very good. And then an amniotomy, true or false, an amniotomy is most effective when it is performed early in the stages of labor. That is false. We do not want to perform it too early because remember, doing it too early has an increased risk of infection, cord prolapse, and other serious complications. What are some of the obstetrical indications to induce labor? We talked about a lot. See if you can name a few of them. So the ones that we talked about were placental abnormalities, intrauterine growth restriction, IUGR, PROM or premature rupture of membranes, oligohydramnios, polyhydramnios, alloimmunization, and post-term gestation. How many did you get? Did you get at least two? Excellent. What about some medical factors that would be indications for labor induction? So some common ones are hypertensive disorders, diabetes, and then chronic conditions like renal disease or cardiovascular disease. Excellent, excellent work with this. If you enjoyed doing the pod quiz, if it really made you think and you think, wow, that would be a really cool way to study, it would get me up from my desk. That's exactly why I created Study Sesh. So go and check that out. I'll put the link in the episode notes. It's straightanursingstudent.com forward slash study dash sesh. So what is on the docket for next week? We are going to be talking about clinicals during COVID. So clinicals have changed because of the pandemic and COVID and dealing with that changed from students not having clinicals to students having a few clinicals to students only caring for COVID patients. So there's a wide, wide range. So we'll be talking about that next week. So if you're curious what your clinicals might look like in nursing school, or just to see if what you're experiencing is only what you are experiencing, or if other people are going through the same thing, I can't wait to talk to you about it next week. See you then. This podcast is brought to you by Straight A Nursing. 